So growing up, my family had a few Christmas traditions, but growing up in a minister's home, we didn't have a whole lot because some of our Christmas was at the mercy of the church that dad was on staff at. So some Christmases, I remember, we'd be up late at night with like what they called watch, watch hour services, like right before Christmas. So service would start at 11 p.m. And other times it would start at 7. And we'd have all sorts of things to do. So we didn't have a ton of traditions. But we had one tradition that we always did, which is instead of opening gifts on, Sunday, on Christmas morning, we would open Christmas, our gifts on Christmas Eve. That was our tradition is uh, we would exchange, we'd draw names, and then we would exchange gifts then. But, but first was the really important thing, which is go and get Dad's Bible and read Luke 2, 1 through 20. Like, so our traditions were Dad reads Luke 2, 1 through 20. Mom's got snacks, like Super Bowl kind of snacks, pizza pocket kind of things in the oven. And then we would uh, read the story, and then we would open gifts. And I remember one Christmas in particular where I was probably 13, 14 years old at the time. So we've done this year after year. I've heard the story over and over. At one point, I'd memorized that passage. And I, I remember that one, that year, I kind of stepped out of the room and went to go get the snacks from the kitchen. I was sitting there snacking on all the... Um, all those little pizza bites in the kitchen while dad read the story because by that point I'd heard it so many times. I'd heard it in church services. That was the family tradition. And so by that point, I was kind of bored with the Christmas story. My reaction was, well, we've we've talked about this over and over and over. The good stuff is the snacks in the kitchen or the gifts that are going to come in a minute. And so I'm kind of ashamed of that story, but not, not enough to not tell you that. But I... When I think about Christmas, it's easy for us to kind of begin to get so familiar that we can fall into a few different patterns. We can fall in like I did with this kind of boredom. I've heard this story. I know this story. And I also know it's not actually the biggest deal. The big deal is later in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So the Christmas story, yeah, it's a necessary part of the beginning of the story. But we can begin to just get bored with Christmas. especially with the Christmas announcement. Or maybe we kind of get puzzled if, if you're better than I am and you get puzzled and go, but what does it mean? Couldn't we just skip to the meat of the story? Like, like what difference does this part make? Couldn't we just go to the part where he dies and rises again? It, couldn't we just like skip to the good stuff and Christmas is just that necessary filler? And so we go, what does it mean? Is there some kind of deeper meaning that I'm supposed to get here at Christmas that's more than just God promised, God sent his son, he was born of a virgin Mary. Or maybe we get kind of just cynical about Christmas and the Christmas songs and the Christmas season and go, oh, that's, that's just a commercial holiday built for everybody else. So the Christmas story becomes really, really familiar, especially the Christmas announcement. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at Luke chapter 1, where we're going to look at the Christmas announcement and see the Christmas announcement with new eyes. I want to look look carefully at this Christmas announcement to go, actually, what kind of response? Not just boredom, not just cynicism, not just puzzlement going, I don't understand what's the deal. I want to look closely and I want to show you this story again. So Luke, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 26 to 38. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. If not, it's going to be on the screen if your hands are full. Luke chapter 1. Verses 26 to 38. Last week we started the Christmas season with the story of John the Baptist. The prophecy of John the Baptist's birth to Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
Because these two things go hand in hand. Now is the announcement of the Christ. Verse 26 says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word of God, word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So the detail, this story starts with this detail of Elizabeth's pregnancy is six months in. We saw last week that the end of the Old Testament starts with a prophecy or ends with a prophecy that says that one will come and Elijah will come before the Messiah. And the story picks up with the prophecy to Zechariah and Elizabeth that their son will be the Elijah to come before the Messiah. So it starts six months after Elizabeth, who is old and barren, is pregnant. And it says God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And what I want to show you here is right here, the, the first response to this Christmas announcement is to marvel that God's king has come in history. Not just that God's king has come, but that he's come in history. What I want you to notice is all of the piled up details here at the beginning. It's Elizabeth's pregnancy, it's very specifically in the sixth month of her pregnancy. The, the name We know the name of the angel. It's Gabriel. And he goes to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And he goes to a woman, her husband. We know his name. It's Joseph. He's a descendant of David. We know her name. It's Mary. There are so many specific historical details. So many names in this. It's calling to us that God's king was born in history. He says, you're going to name him Jesus. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And so right here, just as this begins, it comes with an announcement. God's king is here. God's king is here. God's king is coming. But it doesn't just say generically, God's king is coming. God's kingdom is here. It says God's kingdom is coming in history to this place, not just anywhere. Because God is a God of history, a God... Of, of specifics. And so when we think about the Christmas announcement, the Christmas announcement is not just good news and glad tidings for people. It's God, good news and glad tidings for specific people in a specific place in this world, in our world, telling us that God's king comes to our world, the world that you and I live in, where bad things happen and work gets really, really hard and we struggle with anxiety and depression. And when we're going through a world saying, God, what is happening here 
the Christmas is an, announce, is an announcement that God comes to that world, not just to a generic world out there somewhere. John Frame describes that many religions, if not most religions, rely on being generic. It's just like if this is true, if their religion is true, if their tenets are true, it's it's true because it's timeless and it's not rooted in anything. Buddhism is true because it's a, an eternal, timeless thing. Hinduism is true because it's an eternal, timeless thing. But Christianity hinges on specific moments and specific things with specific people where we're not just having a generic hope, we're actually having a specific hope. And so the fact that it's saying his name was Joseph and hers was Mary and they lived in Nazareth and that that's a town in Galilee is a call to say this is real places that Jesus comes to save real people. And it's not just made up. It's not just something that we hope for. And so Christmas is an announcement that God is with us, you and me, flesh and blood, not just hopefully God is near, but God's with us. And so we are called to marvel that God's king has come in history. We can fall into cynicism. We can fall into boredom. We can wonder, what's the meaning? One of the meanings is that God's king comes to people like you and me for real. Kids, it's, it's a story that this really happened. It's not just, well, I hope that this is, this is some wishful thinking and some characters that would be nice. It's that God's king came in history. And so all of his promises are going to come true in history. So we're called to marvel at Christmas and react and go, oh, God is with me in this world, at this job, in this house, in this town, at this time. It's not a myth. So it starts with God's king has come in history, but then the Christmas announcement is an invitation. It says, take heart. His kingdom will not end. Verse 33. So he said, God's king has come, very specifically at this moment in history. Then verse 33 says, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Another way we'll put it, and his, he will be king over Jacob's house forever. His kingdom will never end. And so the Christmas announcement is an announcement that the kingdom has begun. It's not just an announcement of a baby's birth and the good stuff is later. It's actually an announcement that right now his kingdom is here. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. If you've got a second, turn over there with me. This is a quotation from Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. He will be given authority. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so the angel comes to her and says, This is that moment. Mary, this is the moment of the promised Messiah who God promised would come and his kingdom would never end. And so Christmas is an announcement to us that his, we live in his kingdom. And it's an encouragement. Take heart. You right now are living in His kingdom. It can feel like you're living in the kingdom of the world, in a kingdom of darkness, in a kingdom of confusion, in a kingdom of depression or anxiety or despair. A kingdom with no meaning. But Christmas is actually an announcement that we are living in His kingdom and it's not going to end. Graham Goldsworthy tells the story of the, when he tells the story of the Bible, the story of the Old Testament, is it's, it's a story of a hero and the people's hopes get built up, 
And then they get dashed, either because of the leader's sin or because he dies because he's human. The the story of the Old Testament is a a hero like Moses who's delivering the people out of Israel, but he can't lead lead the people out of Egypt, but he can't lead the people into Israel. And so it's this, these dashed hopes. And it's the story of these great hopes in Joshua. But Joshua dies and the people go off into disobedience. And then we have a hero like Samson who delivers the people from the Philistines. But he goes off after foreign women, rejecting God. And so Israel is in bondage. The story of the Old Testament is kings and leaders that disappoint because they die. And so we get to Daniel and he says, his kingdom will never end. His kingdom, the Messiah is going to come and his kingdom will never end. And the angel comes here and says, Jesus, your baby, his kingdom will never end. He is the Messiah. And from this time forward, everything will be different. And so that means to you and I, we are living in that baby's kingdom right now. We are living in that baby's kingdom. You wake up in the morning and you go to the cabinet and you find pills to deal with anxiety or whatever it is that you're dealing with. Just know that you're living in that baby's kingdom today. If you're a child and you go to bed at night saying, God, I don't want to have nightmares tonight, like so many kids I know say, this this story says we're actually living in that baby's kingdom. We fall asleep with him as king over the world. If you are nearing retirement and going, do I need to sell my house to, to make sure I get the most out of it? Or how can I extend my finances to reach this point? Just know that you are living in this baby's kingdom, that your worries exist in his world not separate from it, not just hoping for it one day. If you are wondering, am I fulfilling my purpose as a mom or as a dad or in my work? And I'm going, what's happening? Is my life making a difference? This story says you live in that baby's kingdom right now. So take heart. Hold on. Know that whatever you're facing is happening in his kingdom, not apart from it. This, I can't help, but when I read this, his kingdom will never end, reminds me of Matthew 28, 18 through 20 where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Right there, he's claiming the very thing that the angel Gabriel said was his. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So that means that we make disciples in his kingdom, with his authority, and it will never end. We're not hoping to see his kingdom come in our town We're not, or towns. We're not hoping that his kingdom will come in our communities, in our house, and in our hearts. We're actually participating with him in the kingdom that has already been established and will never end. And so what you're doing is not wasted. What you're doing is not wasted in his kingdom. There is no job too small. There is no role in your life that is too insignificant. Take heart. You are living in that baby's kingdom. And his kingdom will never end. Then Mary goes, how can this be since I am a virgin? That's a kind of a funny question because just before this, Zechariah had asked when the angel came to him, how can this be? And he was rebuked for for, uh, challenging God, for questioning God. The angel doesn't treat Mary that way. And the, the other odd thing is Mary kind of has an explanation. She's engaged. Like she could have a baby. But she knows something's different. If he's the Messiah and his kingdom will never end, then this can't be Joseph's baby. She knows this can't be Joseph's baby because Joseph is a man, just like my dad and my grandpa. Joseph is just like all of these other guys. So something has to be different. So the angel answers. 
It says, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. This paragraph is chock full of amazing details. As he begins to explain and unfold for her, this is going to be a different kind of birth. It's not going to be Joseph's baby. This is going to be God's baby, pointing to the virgin birth, this miracle. But not only is he pointing to that, he begins to unfold. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. He's using a way of talking of what happened in the Old Testament when God's Spirit would come and overshadow the temple. And he's telling her the presence of God is actually going to come on you in this moment. This is a much bigger deal that we end up seeing the Trinity in the middle of this as we see the distinction of Spirit, Father, and Son in this moment, but the unity of God in this moment. And so this, in this he says, the very presence of God is actually going to make this happen, Mary. So this isn't just some kind of simple announcement. This is this mysterious and very deep announcement to her God in his presence is actually going to come and descend on you, Mary, in a way that's unlike anything else. But he says, so this is the birth, it's going to be the virgin birth. God, the Trinity, is going to come and overshadow you with his presence. And then he says, but that's a little, a little unclear, Mary. Let me give this really, really specifically. Your barren aunt is pregnant right now. That aunt, you guys have always pitied and wondered, why did God not bless you? She's pregnant right now. This is proof to you. This will be proof to you that God is going to do this. Points her to Elizabeth. And then he, in verse 37, quotes and says, for no word from God will ever fail. And this is a word-for-word quotation of the angel's prophecy to Sarah that she would be pregnant. This is a word-for-word quotation of that from the Old Testament where she's like, how can I have a baby? And in that moment, he says, for, no word, for nothing is impossible with God. No word from God will ever fail. And the word that's used here, I love how the NIV translates this, no word from God, because it's not just, well, God says things and so God does things. It's this idea that when God speaks, He creates. When God speaks, it happens. It's a special way of, of hap- It's a special way of talking. The closest thing that we have to that is in the declaration of a husband and wife in marriage. We have nothing in the world in which we say something and it happens. God has that way of doing things. When he created the world, Genesis 1-1 says he spoke and then it happened. And then when he comes to Sarah, he says, no word from God will ever fail. When God says it, it happens. It makes things happen. And so right here, he's pointing both back to that story and he says, when God speaks it, it happens. So then we get Mary's response. Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. She picks up that exact same word from the previous line. May your word to me be fulfilled. May the thing that God speaks and creates, may it happen here. And then the angel left her. And so the third response to the Christmas announcement in this story is, will we bow before the divine king with Mary? Will we bow with Mary in this moment? The angel has made it clear that the Holy Spirit Though the Father are going to come on her and that the Son that is to be born to her is going to be God Himself, born of her flesh. And she says, look at me. I'm the Lord's servant. 
may your word to me be fulfilled. Mary bows, not just saying, okay, let it be the way that you want, but Mary knows in this moment that this, if this baby is going to be God, that she's not just bowing before the angel who tells her what God says, that she's actually bowing before the baby to be born in her womb. So will we bow before the God who speaks with Mary? Who speaks things into action at Christmas? Are we going to bow before God in His presence? The way Mary bows before the words of Gabriel, the words of God. Are we going to bow before the Savior? The way Israel and Mary are going to be called to bow before Him. Are we going to bow with them? We're going to marvel, hey, God's King has actually come in history. Are we going to take heart? His kingdom will never end. And are we going to go, if this is God, then I will bow before him. This becomes good news for us. Because quite honestly, in my own heart, I don't often marvel at God. Often in my own heart, I don't take heart his kingdom won't end. I instead work on my own kingdom. How can I actually make myself look good and impress other people? I don't bow before the divine king. And so this passage actually begins to judge me. This passage begins to judge me and says, look at all of these things you've not done. You don't marvel, you don't take heart, and you don't bow. This passage becomes good news for us because God's king has come in history and instead of being rejected and despised like I should be rejected and despised, he was rejected and despised in the real world in history. I'm supposed to take heart that his kingdom will never end, but he the reason that that can be true is because death is no threat to him. Because he's overcome death in our place. We're called to bow before the divine king, but we don't bow before the divine king. But instead, when he was crowned with thorns, the, the soldiers bowed before him with a mock, with mock honor, with mock bowing, with mock worship before him. And doing the very things that I do. And he takes that in my place so that now Christmas can be a good announcement for me instead of judgment, whereas instead of judgment on me, it becomes good news. So then this Christmas, I can begin to marvel. God's king has come in history for me. I can take heart. His kingdom will never end. I can bow before the divine king because the punishment that I deserve for all the ways I've never done things was actually put on him. So how can I bow? How can, what does that, Joe, what does that mean to really and truly bow before the king? What is the primary bowing that God wants from all of us? The story of the Bible is the story that God made the world and he made it good. The story of Christmas, that longing that we have for goodness is actually reflected in creation. That God made the world and he was king over it and he made us little kings under him. But instead of bowing before him like we ought to bow, instead we turned away and said we will set up our own kingdoms, we will do our own things, we will live our own ways. The Bible says that God will one day crush and judge his enemies forever. They will be cast away from him with no hope of reconciliation. But instead of leaving us that way, the Bible says that God came living the life we should have lived in this moment, in this world, not in a dream world, not in a story. He came and lived the life we should have lived in this world with our temptations, knowing those weaknesses and sin, like knowing those weaknesses and temptations like we do. But he lived the life we should have lived. Then he died the death we should have died so that all who turn and trust in Christ 
can be welcomed into the embrace of the Trinity, so that we can be welcomed into the relationship with God, so that we can be welcomed into His kingdom, saying, come, come into my kingdom. And so what is the bowing that God wants from us this Christmas? Whether it's for the first time or the 30th time, here at Christmas, God's calling us to say, I don't want my own kingdom, I don't want my own way, I'll take yours. No matter what it involves, no matter what it takes, Jesus, I want you. The way that we begin is the way that we continue. That's the way that we marvel. That's the way that we take heart this Christmas. And so if you hear that, and you've heard that many times, or you've heard that for the first time clearly, come and grab me. Grab one of the other leaders here and say, hey, I want to know for sure that I'm bowing before the king and that this is the best Christmas ever. Because my response to the Christmas announcement is what God wants from me. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you that the Christmas season is an invitation for us to bow before the king who draws us up into his family. In Jesus' name, amen.